Welcome to Trunk Church. Come drink the blood of God with us. Bless you for being an angel Just when it seemed that heaven was not for me Hello and welcome. My name is Cosima B. Concordia and I'm a transsexual menace and writer based in Portland, Oregon. Hi, my name is Aurora and I am a suffering sapphic academic based in <laughs> Chicago. <laughs> sapphic. Suffering okay. sapphic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this is our second episode talking primarily about Oliver Davis and Tim Dean's hatred of sex. Last episode, we covered, you know, sort of what is it about sex? What is it about it structurally that makes it such a slippery little subject? And today we're going to go into that specifically around how a lot of different theories have tried to grapple with sex in ways that have kind of lost the actual ability to talk about sex itself. We're going to talk about whether or not queer theory hates sex. Queer theory in a foundational way as a splitting from feminism, as saying that, like, no, there are other issues that feminism cannot address. And part of that is the issue of sex. And so, like, with Gail Rubin's thinking sex, it is this really radical departure, saying that part of the problem of feminism is that feminism is left unable to think sex outside of systems of oppression and violation. And so that's kind of the origin of how queer theory gets its start. And so hatred of sex very much leans on Gail Rubin and says that like Gail Rubin has these insights about the nature of sex that are extremely correct about like the mess of sex and about the way that sex like upturns these like traditional hierarchies in larger society, how like the thing that we may be attracted to is not necessarily a gender. It's not necessarily like built around these like classically constructed gender divides because of the way that desire functions. And so that it's inherently like very destabilizing. And then part of Tim Dean's and Oliver Davis's point is that immediately after Gail Rubin in the history of queer theory, sex is sublimated into these more easy to deal with categories like sexual identity and like race and these things that can be reduced to identity rather than the full messiness. And so they obviously see that as a huge mistake that carries to this day. And, and I think that there's a lot of contemporary work being done recently, like within the tradition of queer theory that is like critiquing how queer theory is erotophobic, what comes to mind immediately, like homopsyche is a big one. And so that I think there is that real realization of how sex has been repressed. Let's talk about erotophobia in queer spaces, like both within the academy and without, because this is a nice opportunity to apply some of this theory, unless you want to stay in the academic context. Yeah, no, I think that's great. So like we were talking about, the reason we have hatred of sex is that sex is scary. Like sex threatens my sense of myself as a coherent being with secure boundaries. It's what makes sexual activity so appealing, but also conversely so off-putting. Even when my partner is doing everything right, sex risks potential boundary violations. There is some part of me, a deplorable part from which my ego recoils, that longs to have certain boundaries breached. And so I think we're in this very interesting period in the history of sex. We had these that are still largely invisible power structures that basically allow, you know, certain demographics of people to sexually violate other demographics mm -hmm. of people with relative impunity. And now there has been a groundswell of a reverse of that that has played out in some places and, and has not in others. And, and certainly, 
it's interesting how it certainly seems to be that the the more privileged of a person you are, like cis white men that are accused of of like really horrific abuse, they seem to certainly be able to get away with it pretty scot-free. Mm-hmm. I was really struck by the example of how Gail Rubin herself, like when she was involved in her activism of like trying to give voice to like all these lesbian practices and trying to say that like let's not argue for a normal better sex let's just create the space to do this i think that that was like in the uncoupling of sex and gender that's like what that that opened up that queer space which then immediately like starts to get gentrified so their example is all of these psas about bdsm so it's defended as safe sane and consensual that erases what brings people to bdsm in the first place which isn't to say that it isn't safe sane and consensual but i mean it's not though but yeah (laughs) um but as they say that it erases the paradoxes of pleasure that constitute the appeal like the risk the riskiness so in sanitizing bdsm like takes the bdsm out of bdsm for me like i have a lot to say about our simplistic notions of consent that the the pro-sex politics ends up being co-opted so if what makes gail rubin's contribution to theory so radical is that it decouples sexuality or sex from gender because gender is a power dynamic and it's seen as like discrimination or feminism is seen as a critique of gender discrimination then what happens when sex becomes the site of this pro-sex politics is that gender creeps back into it and the same power dynamics that had been successfully subverted in order to create these messy spaces where there can be paradoxes of pleasure as is experienced within BDSM practice, then it just immediately ossifies. Yeah, I don't want to be too critical of like safe, sane and consensual because again, we haven't gone over the lesbian sex wars yet. But like safe, sane, and consensual was a framework made within BDSM community that was made when there was such incredible hatred (laughs) towards leather folk in the queer scene coming from other queer people. Not that there isn't today, but certainly at a very different scale. And lots of leather folk really being blamed as like merely perpetuating the same power structures as this heteropatriarchy, you know, like not wanting equality, basically just wanting to be fascist. And so then the idea that like, oh, no, like, don't worry, we are being consensual, we are being safe, we are being sane. And part of that was PR. And like, since then, you know, we have different frameworks, like RAC, like risk-aware consensual kink which is noticing that fundamentally to people coming together and doing a sexual experience, there is always risk there. So there is always a sense of vulnerability, a sense of possible feelings of violation, even if like consent is met and everyone is doing, you know, the quote unquote right thing that we can still come out of it feeling really bad. And so what's important is that we have a risk-aware framework, that we are informed of the risks of what we do, and so that we can like go into situations like knowing what we're getting into because we're adults with agency. And I was thinking about this a lot. <laughs> like, you know, there's been a lot of stuff on internet these detransitioners who like go on hrt or you know get surgery or whatever and then you know maybe their voice is lower Mm -hmm. they get whatever and then later they like detransition and like we're not even going to get (laughs) i'm not gonna get into how many of those people may like still be trans or maybe like self-hating and you know how like but the thing is then they're held up as these ideas of oh look at how horrific this is you know like this poor girl has a deep voice and because she went on testosterone, isn't that the most horrific thing imaginable? And it's like, that is what trans people go through all the time who are fucking begging for puberty blockers, begging for care. And the only reason that that you would see trans people being denied puberty blockers or denied care as less important is transphobia, just like straightforwardly. And I would say, I would take it even a step further, that it is actually part of life. And it is something that is very good for us to have a society where we have bodily autonomy, full 
bodily autonomy, where we can decide what to do with our own bodies. And sometimes that involves regret. The thing about trans-affirming surgeries is that there's like a 1% regret rate, which is much lower than like lots of other types of surgeries and other types of care. But even if that wasn't the case, we should still be able to do what we want with our bodies. Like I have had BDSM experiences, you know, and, and scenes that I have come out with bad feelings about. I've like come out and I had a bad time, but it wasn't because someone did something wrong. It was because something about my own desire. Like I didn't really understand like what I was getting into or something. For whatever reason, I had a bad feeling afterward. Mm -hmm. But like the fact that I was able to go into those situations and consent to them and then also have the tools to know that I could remove myself at any time, that is what allows for those things to not perpetuate real lasting harm on me, right? Because even if I regret that experience, like maybe retrospectively, like wouldn't do it again, it's still okay. And that's how I feel about these like fucking detransitioners. Like at least they got a fucking choice. Like mm -hmm. if you choose to do something with your body and you regret it, that is actually something that we should encourage. And the real horror, the real horror of rape and sexual violation is that it is something that we do not consent to, that it is something that is forced on us despite the fact that we had no agency or, or like, um, ability. And so I think that, like, that framework can really, can really be put onto a lot of things. Like, I really believe in autonomy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I have a quote from Foucault that might be helpful for our discussion of sex and sexuality and why it's so hateful and Ruben. Yeah. Yes, please. <laughs> okay. So, Foucault says it's strategically important to live in the most explicit way possible. So he goes on with someone you love who can be a boy if it's a boy, a man if it's a man, an old man if it's an old man. It's strategically important when you meet a boy on the street to kiss him and possibly make love to him, even in the back seat of a car, if you want. In the same way, I'm saying that it's important for there to be places like baths where, without being imprisoned or pinned in your own identity, in your legal status, your past, your name, your face, and so on, you can meet the people who are there and who are for you, as you are for them, nothing more than bodies, with whom the most unexpected combinations and fabrications of pleasures are possible. This is absolutely an important part of erotic experiences, and it is, I would say, politically important that sexuality can function in this way. So we certainly don't live in a world where this is how sexuality functions. So he continues, It is simply regrettable that there are not places like this for heterosexuality. After all, why wouldn't it be something rather marvelous for heterosexuals who wanted to be able to do something like that in the middle of the day or night to go to a place equipped with every comfort and every possibility? In the transcripts as he laughs because it's an interview. <laughs> yeah. Well, so I think that kind of the possibilities there, like I really want to return to that again in our when we get into cruising, because I do think that like cruising cultures in like queer community, like primarily do have these, you know, as talked about by like Samuel Delaney and, and also Tim Dean and a lot of other folks have these the very radical potentialities around like breaching these like boundaries of like of identity of like class and race and like breaking down those things about who we would like regularly associate with mm. and it's it's funny like i'm very fascinated in cruising as a concept but despite you know the few few times that i've done it like it's not actually like my thing like i only really enjoy sexuality when it's like based off of these like long-term built very intimate relationships but i think that there is a huge potential in like thinking about sexuality in that way that the way that we relate to one another and can like break down the boundaries between each other goes on to say to encounter bodies that are both present and fleeting places where you desubjectize yourself that is you desubjectate yourself in a way that is and i'm not saying the most radical but in any case in a way that is intense enough so that the moment is in the end important the intensity of pleasures are indeed linked to the fact that you desubjugate yourself that you cease being a subject and identity it is an affirmation of non-identity, not because you leave your ID card in the changing room, but because multiplicity of possible things, of possible encounters, of possible pilings up, 
possible connections means that in the end, you cannot fail to be identical to yourself. You could even say that at the limit, it desexualizes. In this sense, the moment constitutes a kind of underwater dive sufficiently intense that you emerge from it without desire, both in the strict sense and in the good sense of the term. I just like the fact that it's when you leave everything behind and you let yourself just take the dive, then that's when you can actually experience yourself. And it's that paradoxical troubling of identity that is fluid rather than a shoring up. Yeah, definitely. I think in a different way, like leather sex, even outside of cruising and in like more established relationships is very much about breaking the boundaries, like not non-consensually, but like about like changing. And the reason it feels so much of like leather practice can feel so religious is because it is fundamentally blurring and confusing the lines of like self and other and in these like really intense ways. So like, here's a few quotes. Sex may be the arena in which I do not wish to be equal, but to be dominated, to embrace subservience to another. Here, it is a matter not just of attending assiduously to others' pleasure, but of intensifying my own through objection and debasement. Needless to say, any desire for sexual domination, for a hand squeezing the throat, for a smack to the face, or an insistent pushing of boundaries, violates the liberal consensus that sex should be a performance of equality. A friend who is into fisting tells us only in half-chest, that he's not satisfied until the bedroom looks like a crime scene. With this expression, we take him to be referencing signs of disorder and indeed evidence of sexual shattering. Our friend is suggesting that for it to qualify as satisfying sex, he needs human bodies to leave traces of having been affected beyond their usual limits. And I have to say that is, I think, is a perfect description of what really good sex is to me. Like, I do want the room to look like a crime scene. I do want to feel pushed beyond the usual limits of my body and selfhood. That is what makes sex and, like, the sexual experience so meaningful to me. And, I mean, that's also why I have so many, like, boundaries and like, around, like, who my partners are. Because to, like, get into those situations is to put yourself up to so much, like, legitimate vulnerability. And that is very scary in a lot of ways. But it's in that fear, in that horror, that is is why it's so meaningful. Like, the longing to be fucked within an inch of my life implies that part of me requires extinguishing, by force if necessary, in order that I may access properly sexual pleasure, as distinct from merely erotic pleasure. It is not that I permit the other to fuck me roughly, and then more roughly still, to maximize his pleasure, but rather my deplorable own. For me, submission, a lot of... The ways that I practice are about being pushed to a point where I'm with someone that I deeply trust in these boundaries that have all been deeply negotiated to protect me on some level, but then also pushing me to a point where I, in that moment, can arguably not meaningfully consent. I am self-shattered. And I think that that is like the complexity of some of the things that we do, that we get to determine what is harm and how we are well we don't get to determine what harms us but like someone doesn't get to come in and tell me that like oh the things you do like you are being abused which is certainly something that i've been told that fundamentally to practice certain types of sexuality is fundamentally a form of abuse no matter how loving no matter how consensual within that context so yeah it's messy yeah <laughs> To create a universal normative definition of what consent means then takes away the very conditions for consent to exist or for someone to have 100% consent, then that also takes the possibility away because the ability, like having consent also necessitates the ability for the person that's given it to take it away. So that's always, as you mentioned, that risk and that speaks to the necessity of that paradox. The only way that you can get consent is by accepting the possibility that it might not always be there, accepting the fact that it's going to look different every time and for different people and having to linger there. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, to, to go back to our episodes on like the fantasy is death and, and on fascism, like part of the thing is that desire functions in the horror and the dissolution of self. Like it, it can mean an eroticizing of trauma. It can mean eroticizing of the very things that do us harm. And those can become the things that give us pleasure in the moment, which is, you know, in a purely political sense, can be seen as like deeply abhorrent. So like, 
Instead, we are pointing to a deplorable potential existing in all sex that approaches a certain threshold of intensity. If this sex has an orientation, it would be neither gay nor straight nor queer. Deplorable sex is oriented towards disintegrating the human ego and violating its ideals, including its political ideals, in the service of pleasure. Yeah, and I mean, the, the sex I like to have is very deplorable. <laughs> Ruben was invested in liberation and seeing sex as a side of liberation, and Foucault is not that optimistic. Gail Rubin begins with this claim, like, it's time to talk about sex. And the authors, they also talk about how it seems like sex is something that we're either going to get back from the past or it's like ready to to happen just in like a little bit in the future. Because it reminds me of this po polemic line from the history of sexuality where Foucault says, kind of tongue in cheek, tomorrow sex will be good again. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> That's the cry. Uh -huh. It's the battle cry. Tomorrow sex will be good again. We're going to talk enough about it we're gonna get good enough at talking about it we're going to understand ourselves in these neat tidy identities it's gonna get good again we're gonna prescribe us ourselves all these different pills but that's just a false hope like a, a false promise for liberation if that's how we see sex then we're doing something wrong <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah as they put it, to imagine one's sexuality might be liberated misconstrues how power operates to produce and not only to constrain sexuality. There is no outside of power into which one could be freed. Despite its invocations of Foucault then, thinking sex is considerably less Foucaultian than much of the queer scholarship that followed it. Mm -hmm. no, absolutely. And that's that liberatory promise. Foucault isn't just saying we can just do bodies and pleasures and get out of power he's like no 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 it's like you have to figure out your circumstance within it and you're navigating it constantly so queerness which was originally a critique of identity then becomes an identity in and of itself in the same way that intersectionality which was so important to making visible these specific points or these specific experiences that were being made invisible like namely the experiences of black women now, and this is their, I don't want to say critique of it, because I, I feel like what they're showing again is the gentrification of these terms. Yeah, which is perhaps always the fate of language as it becomes more normalized, right? We take back words in order to disrupt and traumatize language. And then as that language becomes more rooted and more normalized, then it ceases to have that like same potential as it becomes a single thing. Mm -hmm. So, like, what Crenshaw had developed was this very powerful tool, but then once it just ends up being forced out of its context, so once it's about, like, how can we stack all these identities together to try to be as inclusive as possible, then we're not actually attending to the specifics that this theory was meant to open up. Now what we're doing is we're actually just sort of homogenizing these discrete identities or we're turning them into a kind of discrete identity that they might not have otherwise been and it's ultimately risky they acknowledge the importance of intersectionality as a framework and how it did like and does shine a light on things that weren't before the thing that oliver davis and tim dean see like reuben as having like these profound insights that then were diluted later so reuben grasped how in order to think about sex critically it needed to be not only de-biologized but also de-psychologized de-privatized and de-individualized so that you can't think about it in terms of these like individual identities and this discrete individualism. Conventional liberal notions of personhood, privacy, and individuality are insufficient for thinking about sex. So we can view Rubin's essay as poised on the cusp of an anti-identitarian conception of sexuality mm -hmm. that would flourish with the first wave of queer theory in the subsequent decade. So basically thinking sex by decoupling sexuality and gender, it pulls Rubin away from a feminist framework because fundamentally what it's doing is it's exiting sexual essentialism. So it's fundamentally saying that like, no, gender is not actually the most important way for us to think about sex. Gender is just one 
of many, many, many different facets of how we need to be able to think about sex. And that that decentering is this thing that does allow us to like start to look at like how sex actually functions. Mm -hmm. When it's not bound up in ideals of what sex should be within a feminist context. So in attending to the ways in which the female gender is subordinated, more woman on top, less woman on bottom. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, and it displaces heterosexuality as like the fundamental paradigm, right? And so um, one of the most radical things about it and one of the things that feminism still, I think, fails (laughs) like all the time is not thinking of like gay sex as merely variations of... (laughs) you know, this model of like straight sex or gay sex as this liberated thing that has like escaped the oppressive bounds of straight sex, you know, that it's like, no, that was never the blueprint. The straights were never the blueprint. Mm-hmm. Tell the straights to stay in their lane. Mm-hmm. Okay. So something that I think would be very helpful to, for us to articulate or for us to think through is what an anti-identitarian conception of sexuality would look like. Mm-hmm. They say, retrospectively, we can view Rubin's essay as poised on the cusp of an anti-identitarian conception of sexuality. Mm-hmm. What, what is that? <laughs> yeah, so I think to give a context of like where Rubin is coming out from, it comes out of you know the feminist sex wars, which we've referenced, of the 1970s and 80s, uh, which... Oliver Davis and Tim Dean describe as a set of intense, often acrimonious debates within the women's movement over pornography, lesbian, BDSM, and sex work. At the heart of the sex wars was the question of sexual pleasure, who had rights to access it, how it should be defined or regulated, and ultimately, whether sexual pleasure could be compatible with feminist politics. You know, we get the famous with... Only words? Was it... What? Is it only words that you're thinking of? Catherine McKinnon and Andrea Dworkins. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the one where they're just like, you're tied up. You can't say no. You're screaming. No one hears. Like, really hardcore scene that they stage. And then they go on this anti-porn screed. Mm -hmm. And I mean, this is also where we get the most cursed (laughs) movement that I think persists this day, I think, within turfdom which is political lesbianism, right? So like all of these fucking straight women who, you know, for often legitimate reasons, like have a lot of don't want to associate their lives with men. And so then create this thing that like lesbianism is like the politically correct position. It it becomes a political identity as opposed to like about desire. And so then you just get like... (laughs) They like you don't even like fucking love women. You don't want to fuck women. It's just like the most anti-desire, anti-pleasure people imaginable, basically. And I think we can trace so many of the worst things and worst threads in feminist politics to political lesbianism and then kind of like the sequential fallout. Mm. I agree, but I like that understanding lesbianism or queerness as something political or as a choice they're not naturalizing it but i hate that it wasn't a choice that they were making because it was making them happy (laughs) yeah yeah for sure but 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 that's the thing is like is like yes we can we can denaturalize and go against a born this way lady gaga framework (laughs) and um and also not be like fucking political lesbians Um, So, you know, I was thinking more about the relationship between intersectionality and the kind of queer politics that they're advocating for. And I think a really good way to parse out the differences would be to say that intersectionality is rooted in civil rights discourse. And so it's rooted within a legal juridical framework, whereas they're trying to say that these coalition building queer politics are meant to destabilize identity and to push a distinction between identity and practice, whereas the civil rights discourse is looking for recognition of a particular identity or exposing the failure for Black people to be recognized as as citizens, as human. It's interesting, you know, they talk about how 
Ruben kind of like set the groundwork for what would become sex positivity or pro-sex feminism today, but that Ruben got a lot of things right that have sort of been like twisted <laughs> or maybe made easier to deal with within pro-sex feminism. So they talk about how like uh, sex positivity is constrained by its tendency to require strategic illusions of deplorability. Pro-sex politics too often entails sanitizing the visions of sex being promoted. So, you know, like safe, sane, and consensual, like the reason BDSM communities used that language was largely in an effort to make people open up to the fact that, like, <laughs> this is not just abuse, to give people a framework that they could understand for, like, why the things that we're doing are not horrific, you know, torture. <laughs> not consensual torture. You know, one of the things fundamental to to hatred of sex that Oliver Davis and Tim Dean are bringing up is that structurally, pleasure contains these paradoxes. So sadomasochism may be at once physically safe and psychically unsafe, and it complicates the political advocacy for sexual pleasure, right? Because like lots of the times, the things we want, they're fundamentally not in line with a political project because a political project is something concrete around an ego and an identity whereas whereas sex and desire is like about the thing outside and so there's this often deplorable element to sex but that Rubin by pointing to how sex has this fundamental sexual pluralism right that's also value neutral so that like feminism and marxism are you know both crucial to Rubin's thought but that also recognizing that part of the problem with feminism and Marxism is that it wants to say like that there is good sex and that there is bad sex and it wants to like make those lines, that there's something that's ideologically correct. And so like, this is a quote from her, it is just as objectionable to insist that everyone should be lesbian, non-monogamous or kinky as it is to believe that everyone should be heterosexual, married or vanilla. And so Ruben points that the differences should be understood as neutral rather as frightened with moral significance. And so we should see deviance as pluralism, right? That there are literally infinite ways that desire and deviance work. And basically every single thing that is attractive to us could be disgusting or maybe not disgusting, but could be like unattractive to somebody else. And everything that we are very much not into could be actively arousing to someone else. And just to recognize that that is the fundamental structure of desire. The meat of Oliver Davis and Tim Dean's claim, which is so interesting, is that the foundation of Rubin's thinking sex, which then, you know, was the bones for queer theory as we know it today, also goes against the way that queer theory came to be at its most base form. So contending that it is essential to separate gender and sexuality analytically to reflect more accurately their separate social existence, she was quite aware that the separation goes against the grain of much contemporary feminist thought which treats sexuality as a derivation of gender. She knew she was fighting an uphill battle, but she went even further in her argument Sex is a vector of oppression. The system of sexual oppression cuts across other modes of social inequality, sorting out individuals and groups according to its own intrinsic dynamics. It is not reducible to or understandable in terms of class, race, ethnicity, or gender. From the perspective of contemporary queer studies, which aspires to render sexuality comprehensible precisely in terms of class, race, ethnicity, or gender, Rubin's claim is tantamount to heresy. How should we adjudicate those competing perspectives, both of which hail from the academic left and moreover equally claim the vantage of political radicalism? You know, elsewhere, like they talk about the only way that queer theory can be thought of is, is within identity or when we're talking about like the act itself, it can only be thought of in then like a feminist framework. So like of like in terms of like violation or inequality or like, the fact that women aren't having good sex, you know, like those things can all be talked about, but the actual sex itself and the content of sex is, is always escaping. And, and I think then what queer studies does through intersectionality and 
through these other modalities is it hides sexuality in things like gender that are quite a bit more sanitized. And I mean, I think that's a thing like, you know, more and more folks I think are calling <laughs> themselves transsexuals again, partially, you know, because like, yes, the word has a very not the best history to it, as do many, many words within the queer lexicon. But at the same time, there is like a danger to it and that sexuality is like in the front of it as opposed to transgender, which um, feels very sexless. It feels very safe. You know, like gender is where sexuality goes to die type vibe. <laughs> Who's that? The athlete that transitioned later in life. Oh, Caitlyn Jenner. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was gonna say, Who's that white woman? Yeah. Who's that fucking white woman? Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah, we don't have to talk about her. <laughs> Another unmentionable. Just because someone is a transsexual doesn't mean they're worth talking about. <laughs> <laughs> That's why and how the liberals ruin intersectionality. <laughs> oh my God. Aren't you like so grateful to Caitlyn Jenner and everything she's done for your community? <laughs> she's done so much for me as a white woman that's that's true that's true actually she's moved she's moved like cis white womanhood forward just like light years <laughs> yeah yeah totally yeah. <sighs> oh my god i want to tread carefully i was like about to just start saying some stuff yeah yeah, yeah. okay <laughs> it ends up really being misused and i liked that example of his his students or i don't know whose student when they were reading the barsoni who's like this is so intersectional when he's just like nope this is actually not about not about that that that's anachronistic like intersectionality is supposed to speak to this legal representation this uh, making visible these like intersecting points of identity what's happening here is coalition building like you're just misconstruing both of these points uh Mm-hmm. You know, at the end here it says, if Crenshaw was trying to liberate vulnerable populations from social subordination, conversely, Leo Bersani urged us to embrace our sexual subordination, doing very different projects with very different goals that can't simply be mapped onto one another. So, like, to introduce Bersani, like, Bersani's most famous essay is, Is the Rectum a Grave?, which he wrote in 1987, and he starts it with, there is a big secret about sex. Most people don't like it. <laughs> so again, I think Bersani represents for Oliver Davis and Tim Dean a kind of elaboration on what they want to take from Rubin, these kind of necessary ways in which she is able to decouple sex from sexuality and gender and race while at the same time pointing to Bersani as being like, but also <laughs> sex is deplorable, you know, that there is something structural to it, that to like always be talking about sex in this like political project way and in this like sex positive way is to miss out on what desire actually is. So what is the rectum a grave does is like Bersani asks us to regard men getting fucked in the ass and loving it at a moment when such acts were considered a death sentence, right? So, so without claiming that gay men are representative of everyone, his argument moves from a specific sexual act to an ontology of the sexual as masochism. So it is coincident with yet distinct from the feminist sex wars context out of which Rubin wrote Thinking Sex and the women of color feminist context with its civil rights legacy, out of which Crenshaw developed her theory of intersectionality, all of those struggles contributed to the emergence of queer politics during the late 1980s and early 1990s. So, like, the thing that made Bersani distinct is that it was coming from this time of, like, of great despair in many ways, you know, of, like, how do you embrace pleasure and desire and, like, selfhood in a time where you and your communities are, are being left to die and there's a lot that comes out of that so they say masochism is the beating heart of human sexuality 
Because the point of sex is not just to come, but to come undone. <laughs> <laughs> Such a beautiful quote. So intersectionality draws on a civil rights discourse which grants recognition and protection on basis of identity categories. By contrast, the queer politics that emerge from AIDS stresses the distinction between identity and practice that was central to Foucault's history of sexuality. So as early queer activists insisted that it is not who you are, but what you do that makes you vulnerable to infection from HIV. So, you know, during this time as gay people were like primarily gay men, but uh, queer folks in general are being so demonized, there was never anything about AIDS that was like queer specific. And that like part of that disarticulation is saying like, no, this is not a gay disease. This is a disease that you should all care about. And actually like that attempt to like make it a gay disease is a way to abandon people and try to distance yourself from the possibility of dealing with it yourself. So he mounts a strong critique of identity politics by articulating an incompatibility between sexual intensity and coherent selfhood. Sex remains indispensable thanks to its potential not for liberation, as is the standard gay argument, but instead for prompting aversion. Most people don't like it. <laughs> so Bersoni really underscores this appeal of powerlessness and has a really awesome application of masochism that I'm super interested in. Mm -hmm. If Rubin redescribes deviance as diversity, Bersani, countrywise, welcomes the deplorability of sex, pursuing rather than negating just those qualities that make sex resistant to social redemption. Because he centers sodomy as like the core central act, he overturns the whole structure of sex being centered around like heterosexuality and just does it in a different way that Rubin does. Mm -hmm. And I also find this comparison like really fascinating that the authors make where, where so Rubin in the porn wars, right, is very much saying that no like sex workers and leather folk that like were not just like re-perpetuating you know we're not the oppressors so yeah, women aren't oppressed because two leather dykes are fisting each other <laughs> exactly so up and against like Dworkin and McKinnon and all of these other rad femme like anti-sex feminists what's so fascinating is how then they portray like Bersani as like taking up Rubin's call but then also in some ways also taking what like the anti-porn feminists said that like pornography and SNM and sex is deplorable and being like yes it is like fundamentally <laughs> to appreciate the wily way in which Bersani does this it helps to compare is the rectum a grave with thinking sex Rubin and Bersani while invoking many of the same thinkers diverge notably in their treatment of anti-pornography feminism the feminist anti-pornography ideology of Dworkin and McKinnon embodies the position Rubin critiques. A great deal of anti-porn propaganda implies that sadomasochism is the underlying and essential truth towards which all pornography tends, she argues. Porn is thought to lead to S&M porn, which in turn is alleged to lead to rape. Practitioners of sadomasochism become scapegoats in feminism's war against pornography. But then, on the other side with Bersani, putting a perverse spin on Dworkin and McKinnon's erotophobia, Bersani argues that their indictment of sex, their refusal to prettify it, to romanticize it, to maintain that fucking has anything to do with community or love, has had the immensely desirable effect of publicizing, of lucidly laying out for us, the inestimable value of sex, at least in certain of its ineradicatable aspects, anti-communal, anti-egalitarian, anti-nurturing, and anti-loving. <laughs> so, so that there is something fundamentally about the structure of sex that is a negation of self, that there is like a deplorable value of sex and that is structural to it. Um, mm -hmm. And yet Bersani says we should also embrace that. We should embrace the way that sex is an embrace of powerlessness and deplorability. Mm -hmm. New normativity of feminist sex is like, again, you always say like equal orgasms, equal pay, but then also that it has to be eye contact and deeply moving, face touching, lovemaking. Mm -hmm. 
That's another really fantastic thing that Oliver Davis and Tim Dean do in their re-examination of the use of Freud is they argue that we all think of Freud as like the guy that sees cocks everywhere. But in a lot of ways, he's actually does this profound degenitalization where everything becomes sexual or like have sexual possibility, which is much more aligned with how leather folks see sex and also the queer potential of what sex can be, that sex doesn't have to rely on the orgasm. It doesn't have to rely on like penetrative heterosexual sex. Okay, so this is where I'll break. I break from the author's reading of Freud because I do think that you can find this. You can sort of retroactively reimagine the possibilities within Freud. But I don't think that this is actually in the text itself. I think that Freud is incredibly sexist and incredibly homophobic. The reason that like lesbians are lesbians is because they're underdeveloped. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) According to him. So he has like weird ideals about the sensation moving from like clitoral to vaginal. And it's his theory that can actually be traced to practices of clitendectomy like people were removing their clitorises because they just felt like they weren't coming correctly because they weren't having vaginal orgasms or because they weren't experiencing vaginal sex in this way that they thought that they were supposed to as developed heterosexual women and this practice actually propagated itself both in Europe and then it came to the states and it was something that happened mm-hmm anyway i think that the authors do really remarkable things with freud i just don't think that that is freud but this isn't to say that i think that freud is worth preserving i think that freud is like we necessarily have to pervert him and misread him and if we're going to actually use him rather than have him be the sort of whipping boy (laughs) yeah well we're not going to get fully to attachment theory and trauma theory in this episode but you were talking earlier and um and making the point it's interesting for like your understanding of Freud, how Freud is read so charitably within this text. But Mm -hmm. then if you were to read these other structures that you see as being read very, very uncharitably and being critiqued in these like really brutal ways, that it's like why, yeah, that there's just not an equalization there about about who gets read what way. Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk more about that? Oh, there's just clearly a commitment to psychoanalysis, which is fine. I just, it is a shame that It's a commitment to it as a foundational structure. (laughs) Like somehow it is both something that can be reimagined, but somehow it's this democratic way of thinking things and like you can critique it and read it against itself. But at the same time, they're saying, well, that's a misreading of Freud if you're critical of him in this way. It's like, I don't know if that's the misreading. I think that that's actually the correct reading is that he's saying all these abhorrent things but i do think that there are more creative and interesting politically applicable ways to read him and to use him and i think that's exactly what they're doing i just it confuses me why they're not taking credit for like what they're doing with freud which is really exciting they're doing all this really exciting stuff with him but it's just i don't think that's freud i think that's them and i think that's great that it's them i think it's better that it's them but it it just confused me I think we can really bring that back to the idea of cyborg writing Mm -hmm. where, you know, like we can be born from all of these, you know, different parental sources that we may take various things from, but that doesn't mean we have to be loyal to them. We can absolutely use them in any way that we can. And I think like one of the biggest problems with the way that like philosophy usually works is that it becomes this weird dogmatic cult around almost like almost like originalism in the in the way that like people talk about like the US Constitution or mm-hmm. something. For like, you know, like that matters. And it's like, no, like this is a text that has been removed from the original for such a long time and has taken a life of its own. We should be able to understand that full complexity and also like undermine the parts that we find disdainful. Part of being good at reading something is being able to do a like rational reconstruction. So to go back to the text and think, how would this author respond to the kind of criticisms that would be levied against them were they writing today, but then also to be able to do historical reconstruction. So what were the conditions that led them to say these things? How can we read this and not be anachronistic? But I also just think we should be constantly challenging the canon. And it bums me out that people hear critiques of the canon as, or critiques of these foundational figures as, oh, you're just saying don't read them. 
saying, oh, these are all white men and just don't read them. It's like, no, no, I'm not saying that we don't read them. The way to do history isn't just to not do it. It's to do more history. If history is bad, it's because we're not doing enough of it. It's because we're not reading enough and we're not diving into it enough and we're not complicating it enough. Mm -hmm. The idea that all of your people that you've learned important things from are going to be like these pure perfect things where every single thing you agree with is is like a profoundly fucked up um standard (laughs) but i I mean i am thankful for example that like i did the work and i like have had to read sart but (laughs) immediately threw that in the trash and read beauvoir (laughs) and then you can also be like well beauvoir is like kind of a shitty white woman like throw that in the trash and like read fanon or like to go back in the, the work we did with Lore and with Bataille. It's like, well, we could, and I have like read Kristeva and Lacan, but, or we could read Bataille and, <laughs> and more. And that's just, that's actually doing better or more careful histories. You're looking to see who they were interacting with and who they were failing to cite, like where the wellspring is. And that's also just doing genealogy. Lots of what Ruben is doing, which is going to, the diversity of sexual experience, take decentering it from the heterosexual genital sex. Freud's conception of that was with the unconscious and the unconscious always being the way that we're perceiving the world and that all elements of things, including objects and all parts of the body, can fundamentally be sexual organs. And so that just aligns a lot more directly with then what Rubin would come to later write than lots of stuff that came after Freud, which very much did focus much more on the genitals and much more on like like very literal perception of like how sexuality is supposed to work and very biologically centered, very much um, not about inner experience, but about what is observable, almost seeing it, seeing people as these like animals that can be like looked at in a cage. <laughs> and it doesn't really matter what the inner experience is. Yeah, I just... But Freud did that too. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. Oh my god. Yeah, that was, I think it's like Marie Bonaparte. Like she's somehow related to Napoleon. But she did all of this research on like vaginas and on like the clitoris because she was trying to understand different types of orgasm and the relationship between clitoral and vaginal, which is weird to even make a dichotomy like that. But she was researching about like how like it has to do with the distance between the vaginal opening and the clitoris, whether or not you're going to have an orgasm with purely like penetration, which again, that is, doesn't make any sense to say, <laughs> given how complicated a clitoris is and how it like is, has all these like roots of nerves. And it was her corresponding with Freud that led her to undergo a clitoris transplant that ended up destroying her nerves. <laughs> And her ability, and it's because she felt like she had to be able to come vaginally. I just, uh, I don't know. I'm sorry. I just am so caught up on this on this Freud thing. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, <laughs> I, I, so I think that those are all very good critiques. Oh my God. Again, I have read Freud, not Freud, as like a secondary source. Mm-hmm. Has been very limited, and was mostly when I did my undergrad, which was a very long time mm-hmm. ago. So, yeah. <laughs> It's also interesting that Oliver Davis and Tim Dean are pointing to a way in which the unconscious is like a very different move in the degenitalizing by showing the erotic potential of everything, which is very much like how eroticism functions, as opposed to the desexualizing of the body, which is like what they argue affect theory does, which is to basically completely remove the erotic and remove the deplorable from sex to make it administratable, basically. I think all of your critiques about like what Freud actually did and Freud's actual treatment of people and marginalized people is very awful. But that in the actual writing itself, that the foundation of psychoanalysis has these tidbits that can be extrapolated into how we can understand sex through figures like Ruben Mm -hmm. and figures like Bersani, these much more like radical queer ways. Um, I'm also curious about, so you mentioned Bersani shifts the paradigm from it's like heterosexual coupling into sodomy and how that like what that does i know that that's also sod's thing sod was really into sodomy because it was non-reproductive and blasphemous and symbolically very violent i think sodomy in in many ways is kind of the ultimate (laughs) 
symbol away from, you know, like heterosexuality. It's it's often seen as like in even our construction of how gayness like used to be understood it was like bottoming that was like the queer act because it was fundamentally to be feminized and to be made powerless and so i think like sodomy in a lot of ways is also the symbol that number one has been criminalized the most thoroughly like if we look at you know the actual structure of what has been prosecuted like how does homophobia actually manifest itself most of it is involved in like sodomy laws and then other laws for gender transgression. Mm-hmm. But fundamentally, sodomy, especially bottomy for sodomy, is the gender transgression in and of itself. And like, I think if you talk to a lot of like straight men, like a lot of straight men have weird fucking complexes about the even the idea of anal sex. You know, it's like so against like their conceptions of of like who they are. And I mean, obviously that's not universally true, but I, I think that's true for a decent amount. But like, if we grasp the allure of sex as an arena for relinquishing mastery, there can be no orgasm without at least temporary loss of control. The idea of powerlessness as appealing nevertheless goes against everything we've been taught about autonomy, agency, personhood, dignity, and self-respect. Powerlessness appears profoundly unappealing politically. The appeal of powerlessness also runs counter to the ego, to what it means to have a strong sense of self. Bersani is trying to explain not only why a masochistic position may be irresistible to some folks, for instance, those who love bottoming, but also how it might be tempting for everyone. Tracing a line of arguments in Freud's three essays on the theory of sexuality, he aspires to universalize masochism, to redescribe it not as deviance, perversion, or kink, but as the beating heart of human sexuality. From this perspective, the point of sex would be not just to come, but to come undone Mm -hmm. by centering bottoming and anal sex as the center of your theory of sex. It is able to articulate, I think, what Bataille was saying about how eroticism functions and then also what Oliver Davis and Tim Dean say about the structure of how sex is always a challenge to the structure of the ego. Mm -hmm. So they say the possibility that sex unmans should be pursued and not repudiated and that this sexual intensity could violate the routine imperialism of everyday narcissism. Mm -hmm. I thought their use of the term narcissism is really interesting because that's a term that I think it's appropriated in pop psychology in really weird ways <laughs> in the same way that like attachment theory has become this very strange. It's like at the same time, it's incredibly scientific and they'll critique its proud scientism, but it's also this thing that there's like a cottage industry of self-help books. And I'm fascinated now with guru culture. <laughs> what culture? Guru culture, culture. like this. I'm sure that that's not a term that I'm coining, but just these like wellness folks, like Mm -hmm. young, generally white, like bougie folks that are just like, I'm going to tell you about why he's not texting you using this guru theory, (laughs) using attachment theory. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Bersani is so fundamentally like opposed to the ability to do that because, you know, like for him, sexuality is about shattering the boundaries of identity. So, you know, if we can look at identity formation, we can look at like someone like Crenshaw, who, you know, wanted to like complicate identity to be able to like understand how we function, but then to actually think sex in the way that Bersani wants to is to like absolutely collapse those boundaries. Mm -hmm. And also to think about it like in the context of the time that he was writing, like during the AIDS epidemic. So like during a time of complete panic around the idea of anal sex of bottoming for anal sex as being like this particularly horrific act and like gay men in particular being like so demonized like what does it mean to still embrace sex like within all of its deplorability within the culture that is making the signs like that that could be self-destruction in like such a literal way you know Mm -hmm. i also think that that kind of self-destruction it's raising identity categories so destroying them versus the impulse to oh like let me do this personal inventory and i'm just gonna create a new little identity i'm gonna build on top until it just ends up becoming super hegemonic like it ends up like inclusivity ends up just being, I don't want to say perverted because 
that's the political move that Bersoni's doing, but it just ends up uh sanitized. Yeah, sanitized. Yeah. Exactly. Inclusivity gets sanitized. Yeah, totally. And that was the like what happened to intersectionality. It's just like well, the critiques of oh you're just creating a new hierarchy that puts black women at the top or oh like how come you're talking about this and not that we need to talk about everything and then suddenly it just you, loses all of its force yeah and they ascribe the you know potential of the self-shattering like if sexual intensity violates ego's defenses then that violation could be exploited in sexual pleasure there lies a violation that militates against sexual violence the capacity of sex to violate to shatter the self could be rethought rather than simply resisted for explicitly feminist purposes. So that by thinking sex as a fundamental self-shattering, as this fundamental risk and fundamental vulnerability, we can use that to rethink the horror of, of our opposition to sexual violence. All right, so um, time for confessions. Aurora, do you want to go first? Confession number one. I nearly caused an accident to impress my girlfriend with my assertive driving skills. <laughs> I mean, better than that sounds better cute. than road rage <laughs> or drunk driving. Yeah, yeah, it sounds scary, but like good, I guess. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm glad you didn't get in an accident. There's a couple of sex movies about cars. The old school one is Crash. Yeah. Crash is so good. <laughs> we need to do a review on Crash. And then there's that new one that is by the same director of Raw. Yeah. Titan. Titan, yeah. I have to confess, I've been listening to the soundtrack of Raw lately as just background music. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's fun. A good soundtrack. <laughs> um all right, but this this one is like a whole saga. We're we're Whoa. actually um going into some of the confessions that I like got a while back. And so these are like a little bit older, but this one's a classic. I pissed on someone's face the other day in my bed <laughs> while my roommates had people over and someone didn't feel good. And my room was the closest. And without thinking about it, I was like, go ahead and lay in my bed. And the poor girl laid perfectly on top of my soaked comforter and didn't notice slash fell asleep with her face on it. And I didn't have the heart to tell her <laughs> what a saga what a saga what a saga oh, uh. yeah yeah bless i don't know I, I i mean it's kind of amazing that she didn't notice like that's it's pretty exceptional yeah i mean i'm not a pee person so i'm just like i'm trying to understand <laughs> <laughs> i just ha like not the understanding why someone would want someone to pee on someone's face or like but just the the soaked comforter <laughs> yeah yeah for sure maybe she did notice and didn't have the heart to mention it. <laughs> <laughs> which is also pretty amazing on <laughs> if that was the case or the pee has curative properties it's true good or she thought that she peed or something like that or she was like drooling there's so many possibilities yeah i assume the friend was probably like drunk or something because i feel like it would be difficult mm -hmm. to just like not feel good and like be completely sober but who knows who knows confession number three i'm in love with my friend and his bf and they're open but i don't want to ruin what we have classic conundrum mm -hmm. <laughs> are we gonna say go for it or? oh i don't i don't know i I, yeah, we no, don't have enough no, no. information to know if they should go for it. We don't have enough information. Yeah. We're not, we're not gurus. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I hope that that works out for you. But I also, I also think this is a common situation. But yeah, that can also get messy really quickly. Or it could be not messy, maybe, potentially. Yeah. <laughs> okay, next confession. I get extremely turned on thinking about my bottom growth i don't care if it's fetishistic yeah, this sounds very great and normal and i don't think it is fetishistic at all to be transitioning and be enjoying the changes in your body and having them like be giving you pleasure and yeah i don't think that that is fetishistic but um good on you for enjoying it mm -hmm. yeah okay so I don't want to transition until I'm with a partner to plan, but I want all the estrogen 
now. <laughs> Lots of W's. Yeah, I think this is a terrible, terrible idea. Do not wait to transition until you have a partner, Jesus. Like, take the estrogen, bitch. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, I don't know. That's that's all. That's really all I have to say. Like, the idea that like you can have a partner and transition, but like <laughs> that should not be like your order of operations. <laughs> Mm -hmm. yeah like you would need another person's permission I, I don't know I'm trying to think of what the partner totally. would add to it yeah don't don't do that stop it don't do that yeah um and final one I've fallen in love with a monogamous person while in a polygamous relationship bummer <laughs> yeah bummer classic mm -hmm. more classic hits playing the hits Mm -hmm. I hope that works out for you. It sucks when people are, when incompatibility um, happens like that and uh, find peace and happiness in that. Yeah. I've been playing this quote over and over and over in my head from Nelson Algren. And he says that it's possible to still have the same feelings for someone, but then just not center them in your life anymore. Yeah. And it speaks to the romantic in my heart. Totally. All right. Well, that's it for confessions. These are significantly less horny than they've been <laughs> last week. <laughs> I know. Yeah. The pea saga is for sure the horniest by quite a lot. Most of them are just, uh, I mean, I, I guess the bottom growth one is, is pretty horny. Yeah. Um, it's been good. It's been horny. Or the car accident one. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess that's fundamentally horny. <laughs> I'm just like, judging the confessions. <laughs> <laughs> more horny confessions all right so this has been our second episode where we're covering oliver davis's and tim dean's hatred of sex and we're going to be coming back to talk about attachment theory and trauma theory within the next couple of weeks and also their critiques of both <laughs> um and yeah, I mean, I, I think that this has been such an interesting text to dive into in such a comprehensive way because it gives us these windows into all of these larger theories that we have wanted to talk about and that we also have, I think, pretty nuanced takes of mm -hmm. from our own individual positionalities. So one of the cool things about this deep dive that we've done is I think that there's been critical engagement or just the suggestions that we've got have been really really helpful and that's been really awesome so thank you for that thank you to everyone that has been listening and and engaging with us it's been really lovely and if you would if you would like to help support our work which is what really helps make the show possible and you know keeps the show ad free you can go support us at www.patreon.com/drunkchurch and you also get access to exclusive writings and review bonus episodes. And yeah, I think that's it for this week. Bless you for being an angel Just when it seemed that heaven was not for me Bless you For building a new dream Just when my old dream Crumbled so helplessly 